Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. Familiar faces I'm seeing on screen and names, but also many new ones. And a welcome to everybody that's joining in from and across Canada and the U.S., but also beyond. So, Shosanam, uh, I don't, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Welcome from Uzbekistan and others um, beyond uh, North American borders. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, and if you haven't yet put in where you're joining from, it's lovely to uh, to see. Starting with um, place, because today's conversation is going to be about um, space and place. And I want to start by acknowledging the traditional territory where we are based um, here in Toronto, Canada, recognizing the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, um, the Anishinaabeg, and in particular, the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. And acknowledging First Nation people and um, their ancestors as the original and current stewards of this land that we feel so privileged to be living and working on. And today I is also important to recognize in a couple of other ways as well. One, uh, Deepa just reminded me that today is the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, which happened a couple of years ago. Yes, that was two years ago. It's also about a week after the shootings in Buffalo. U.S. and um, just uh, hours after the um, shooting of 20 um, young children, which took place also in the U.S. I'm just acknowledging those losses. And I'm going to invite folks, um, if there's an honoring of a particular community or loss that you want to put into chat, because we are joining from so many places and spaces in the world, I want to just offer a moment to be able to do that. Is there anything that you want to acknowledge from your part of the world that feels important to, um, to do that's connected to place or space? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, we had a very vicious storm here in Ontario over the weekend, acknowledging the loss of life. In a way, we're naming all the different storms that happen, weather, human, because of climate change, our London, yeah. Thank you, the anniversary of um, the London Terrorist Act, the anniversary of the discovery of the mass grave at the Cowlips Residential School. Thank you, Gina, Asian Heritage um, Month. Yes, the rise in anti-East Asian hate crimes across uh, Western democracies. Mm -hmm. So we're coming into this conversation just acknowledging, acknowledging the gratitude for what we do have and what holds us up, but also acknowledging all the losses that we've had to hold over the last couple of years. And I think about that being connected to this conversation today because it's still true in so many families and communities and organizations that the folks that are responsible for helping our organizations and families and communities to heal are still predominantly women and still especially predominantly women of color because so many of the acts of violence still hit racialized and indigenous communities. And so the role that women of color uphold on many levels is, is particularly unique. And so I'm gonna 
segue from that into saying my own introduction to Deepa. And I'm going to start, start it from a personal place. So some of you might know, um, as Emma mentioned, I am, my name is Anahid, and I'm the co-founder and now CEO of Anima Leadership. We have been around for 15, 16 years, and we're known, I would say, as one of the leading equity uh, and inclusion firms uh, in Canada. My partner's book, Deep Diversity, A Compassionate Scientific Approach to um, Achieving Racial Justice, is known as a um, foundational book in the realm. And um, I wrote my own memoir a year ago called Breaking the Ocean, Race, Rebellion, and Reconciliation. Starting um, my own organization was deliberate. And I'm going to start this from a snippet of my own personal story, which is that I Today is my birthday and I turn 49 today, which is a pivotal year because I'm coming into the, you know, the, the, the real kind of um, sort of, you know, midlife um, marker of, of close to 50, but it's also the 40th year anniversary of arriving from Iran into Canada, into small town Canada. And um, as many other people have acknowledged, it was the first time that I realized I wasn't just a human being, but I was in fact brown or this thing called paki which wasn't even ethnically accurate but was the sort of garbage term you know um phrase that was used for anyone in that context at that time who was not white thank you for the acknowledgement of, of birthday and i grew up coming into leaving behind the the child that i had been which was like many i think which children should have access to, which is the idea that I don't have to do anything in order to, to prove that I have a space and place to belong here. I can just be, and I can unfold my potential and my gifts because I take that for granted. Well, that was lost. And I entered a phase um, which is sort of unfurled. And I've, you know, over the course of my adult life, I have tried to undo the lessons of, but learning that I had to be different than who I was in order to su succeed in this new land. And it was, it started these deep rooted patterns of perfectionism and I would say self-harm and hypercriticism of myself, of um, workaholism, of because I knew that if I didn't, if I did it in some other way, I just, I wouldn't make it. And I think that that was, that was an internalization of the messages that so many women still get in the society, but it's a thousandfold for women of color. And Deepa, I just wanna start, I just wanna introduce you. Your book is the first one I have come across, which tells the story that so many women of color from many communities across Western democracies uh, carry, you tell the story in data. You legitimize the story that many of us hold and talk about at the water cooler or talk about at breaks or over lunch or at dinner over wine, but rarely have a space to tell in public and you have made it public. And I just have to say, I'm so happy that you've written this book, but I'm also so happy for the attention this book has been getting. I think it's a, a moment in society where we're not just telling the story of women, of predominantly white women, but we're expanding that story so much uh, further beyond that. And uh, I know that this you've written for the Harvard Business Review, for Forbes, for New, the New York Times picked this up. 
Um, you yourself are a ground, uh, a trailblazer, uh, the first female, female to make senior partner at Deloitte, but also the first women of color, a woman of color to, to make senior partner. And I know that you have um, moved beyond to um, have impact in many other places, but a welcome to you and maybe just tell us, well, how are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, thank, well, first of all, thank you for your, how you opened up the space. It's not everyone that does that. And um, this feels very different. So I'm um, excited is the wrong word. I'm happy, I guess, to be present in some ways to, to kind of have a space like this this morning. I'm good. I'm, you know, I flew just so you all know from um, I was in Boston to give me a presentation yesterday and I flew home yesterday. So I was not, you know, uh, it was a seven hour flight. So I was not kind of on the ground as everything was unfolding here in the US with the school shooting. And so to land and to see that it's why I brought it up this morning with you. Like I just you know, seven hours were kind of lost, just, you know, reading, being on a plane, being in a bubble, and then to land to, to this. So I'm, a, I'm still processing, I think, you know, it's a hard time, I would say, to be in the in the US, you know, the, the last decade, I would say has been hard. But I also think we're in a moment between the Supreme Court leak, you know, conversation, and women's rights, and, um, you know, the Buffalo shooting, as you said, and what happened yesterday. Yeah, there's a lot. So it's heavy, it feels heavy to me. So I'm appreciative of this conversation. And I'm also, I would say, you know, in some ways, still optimistic, like I, I believe we have an opportunity to change things for the better. And that the last two years have given us an ability and a hope to kind of tap into our innate wisdom, especially for women of color, but I think for all of us. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with you about that today. I also just want to quickly correct. I was the first Indian woman that made partner um, at Deloitte. And so I just want to clarify that so I don't get messages later, um, just to just clarify the title itself. But um, I'm sure we'll talk about that too. So thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you do. This is hard work. And so it says a lot that you've been in it for over a decade. So. Thanks. Well, and happy birthday too. So oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I think we have to find ways to celebrate the happiness as we also acknowledge the sadness. So, so thank you for, for starting to do that this morning for me. Mm. I'm wondering if you feel comfortable, just this is, uh, I acknowledge perhaps an untraditional way to start, but what's your, I, I know, because I've, you and I have talked, but for the, for the group here, what, uh, what's your origin story? Yeah. So, uh, I was born in the United States and, in, in, in um, Ohio, very, very middle of the country. We moved when I was two weeks old to the East Coast. So I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and my parents were immigrants to this country. So they came in the late 60s from India. Mm -hmm. uh, my father first and then my mother. Uh, so I was born here. Um, but I grew up in New Jersey in very small farm country town. Um, I was one of four students of color in my in my school. And there was a lot of confusion around race as a result. It's not something we talked about at home. You know, I'm sure we'll get to this, but I find that so interesting because even when I, so I interviewed 500 women of color in writing the book. And so few of us actually talked about race at home growing up. Like it wasn't a conversation. I had just wrongly assumed it was a conversation for the black women I would interview. And even for them, it was a very small segment that had fully really unpacked race and race at work. And so I don't know that I understood or had the tools. And so I, uh, very small white country town, I literally lived, I, I went home last weekend, we lived across from a cornfield, that kind of farm country town. There was one stoplight, so very small. Um, <laughs> we would go home to India or my, you know, we, my parents would want to go visit our, our family in India every summer. And I don't know that I necessarily fit in there either, right? Because I had you know, wore shorts, had an accent, wore my hair down. And so I didn't, you know, when I watched the girls go to school every morning in front of my grandma, 
grandmother's gate, like they didn't look like me and they would laugh and giggle. And so this real strong sense of not fitting in anywhere, I think was always there. And then I went to very elite institutions for school and then joined Deloitte out of grad school. And so just um, in a lot of cases, just really um, spaces where I didn't see myself represented. So I think that's really important to acknowledge the sense of not belonging and not fitting in and not seeing myself was always a very sort of deep, innate uh, confusion for me. And I think there's a lot of pain and shame that comes with that. And that's what I found with a lot of the women. So although, you know, I wrote this about the workplace and it's very much catered at the workplace, I think I'm also trying to understand a little bit of my own confusion around identity. And that's part of why I wanted to do this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, I think so much of what we write is ultimately on some level about um, unfurling something for ourselves at the same time. The most powerful stories, I think, come out of that place. How did writing this book help you? You know, I, I had in some ways had to make sense of leaving a 21 year corporate career. That's a long time to spend at one company in one place. And I gave up a lot to rise, right? I made partner in my early thirties. Um, it's not for those of you that don't know the consulting world. So I was a consulting partner. I traveled for work, sometimes three cities a week was very normal for me. And so it was a high intensity sort of job that I was in for two decades. And so to walk away at the height of it, when I still had 20 more years in front of me, one was unheard of and was also really confusing for me. And the reason I chose to walk away was twofold. One, I had growing questions around purpose and was I doing my life's work? My, my background was not business school. I, I went to school for politics and policy. And so 20 years in and with the elections we had in the last few years or last few uh, cycles, I was just had this growing question, but like, what am I doing with my life? Am I doing what I thought I'd be doing. And there was a lot of almost disappointment around that and confusion. And then secondly, I started to get really sick. Um, and it was almost a four-year process of mounting symptoms. It started as small things like skin rashes and headaches and then turned into really big things that eventually was a lot of neuropathy. Like I couldn't feel my hands and feet. And so I ended up taking eight months off before I left. Um, and that eight months really unpacked a lot of things for me. And so for me, writing the book was a little bit of therapy. It was a little bit of understanding and clarity. It was a lot of wanting to make sense of what had happened and also provide a resource for other women so they weren't confused. What I think happened for me is there was a lot of internalization of things that had nothing to do with me that were really systemic, that were really about the system not representing me and not making space for me. And I don't mean just work, I mean everything, all systems, and not really understanding that. And so internalizing that. And so that's a little bit of why I think I got sick. You know, one of the biggest, I'll just get to this point, one of the biggest, you know, findings in my research in these 500 women is that the majority of them are sick. So two out of three women of color I interviewed are sick and not from some clear, you know, diagnosable illness like cancer, but from things like mysterious illness, as I call them. So these stomach, stomach, you know, pains, headaches, heart palpitations. And so um, really trying to understand that and unpack that. So for me, it was really freeing, mm -hmm. I think in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just tell one quick story because I think it'll also help. I spent three years knowing it was time for me to leave because the symptoms were mounting and not feeling like I could um, because I was the first, right? All eyes on me in a 100,000 person organization. I was known by my first name. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like my leaving would not only represent you know, my failure, but for all the other women and women of color coming up around me. And that wasn't a conscious decision. It was just there. And so what I think um, I did in an attempt to figure out what to do is I started meeting with women of color 
color. It started one-on-one over dinners um, and then eventually turned into these dozen dinners that I did with my now business partner where we met 300 women of color and I saw the patterns in those dinners. So I saw the microaggressions and the racism and the challenges and the navigation. And so one, it freed me to walk away because I realized some of what I was feeling was not mine. But secondly, like I wanted to tell the stories. I wanted to understand and like really connect the dots for people because I think some of what we manifest and some of the some of the feelings that we have are universal, whether we're immigrant women, whether we're, you know, born here, whether we're um, new to the you know workplace, they're, they're very shared similar stories. And so it was really freeing. Mm-hmm. I really, um, I hear you talking about the pattern and I think that's really powerful. And I think it is, you tell, you back it up through data. I've experienced it over and over again in my own life. And many of the women that I've come into contact with over the years, but this, this pattern where I think, and you write about this, so many women of color are among the highest educated and experienced and yet the most underestimated in their, their work. And I think, you know, this gap that happens for so many of us between what I am able to do and accomplish externally in my life and the toll that that takes on me personally. And I think about the moment for me where that sort of came to, you know, sort of came to a rub where I was leading um, a national campaign in our in our capital here um, in my mid twenties and really struggling personally behind scenes with an eating disorder. Mm. So I would vomit out at the end of the day what I couldn't express in my work. And nobody, I think few people at the time would have guessed but that was a recurrent pattern until I was finally able to, to reach a place where I realized, and in fact, it came through me writing my memoir, that it has nothing to do with me. Like this deep sense of imposter syndrome, of feeling like I have to constantly work harder, be more articulate, gain more experience, has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And I'll just finish with, um, I know I described this moment to you where a few years ago, I was invited to, to be on this um, TV panel and I arrived and I had my, you know, my four inch stiletto heels and my dress. And I was with my office manager, James, who's on the call here today. And James showed up with a backpack and, and um, you know, jeans. And we're in the, the green room, the producing room. And three producers, um, white, you know, producers walk in one after the other and introduce themselves to James um, um, and shake hands and make eye contact. And by the third one, you know, here I am sort of feeling myself shrinking and shrinking inside. And it was only because of these tools that I've had, you know, equipped myself with over the years, which I know you write about, where I was able to pick myself up and go, remember, Anahit, this is not about you not being enough. This is about the system you're still part of. So pick yourself up, get on that screen and tell it like it is. But the energy, you know, that's required to do that and, and how much effort it took to get there. So, yeah, no, I I mean, that story could be a story in the book and there's, you know, (laughs) hundreds of other ones in the book um, exactly like that. I think that's such a common experience of this being underestimated. Um, You know, for me, it was much more age related. So I would always be, you know, the senior person in the room and I was at least 10 years younger than everybody else. And so it would be comments like you can't possibly be in charge, right? Where's the senior partner? And the first couple of times it doesn't bother you, but if it's happening four or five times a day it does start to eat it like what 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 is that about me that they don't see me as a leader right in my own story but I think for a lot of people it's common a lot of women you know there's stories in the book where black women will walk in and people will say are you here to you know uh you know 
pick up something or deliver something, right? And they're actually leading the meeting. And that's happened to me as well around coffee. Like people ask me, are you here to pour the coffee? You know, when I used to work in Latin America. Um, and so I just think it's it's prominent. We don't talk about it enough, right? And so some of what, you know, I really highlighted and what I'm really trying to get the message around is that workplaces show up differently for, for us, right? For, for people, for all people. And that there hasn't been space to have that conversation that we, we imagine our workplaces. And I wrote the book for corporate America, but now I've now met with enough people as the book as the book is coming out that it's happening everywhere right nonprofits you know in in government this idea that the workplace is the same for all of us and my message is, is that the corporate the, the workplace is not a meritocracy it does show up differently for us and we need to talk about that because otherwise what's happening is we're all overworking ourselves trying to get to the same same opportunities and the same experience and it's not the same what you describe with your producer is what happens you know or your office manager is what happens all the time to women of color every day i get four or five stories right exactly some version of that and it does undermine us it does take our confidence. And so this work has to be about how do you protect yourself? How do you find your power even in those situations? You know, what was fascinating to me, I'll also share is that I was meeting with, you know, some of the most senior women in the, in the U.S. context of corporate America, like the most senior women of color. And they were saying things to me over and over again. I sit in a seat of power and I don't feel powerful. Right. And there's to your point, like in that moment, and you and I talked about this, so I know this is true for you. You felt your power, you know, draining. You felt like you had showed up ready to own your space. And it just was, you know, not taken from you, but how do what's the what's the difference between what's taken from you and how you protect yourself is a little bit of the conversation that I'm having. There can be things that happen to us, but how do you protect your power in those moments? And so that's really what I was trying to unpack for myself, but also for all of us. Mm hmm. And I'm so grateful that you you nailed it because, you know, it's we're in a moment where I feel like feminism has in a way been co-opted by capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the books that, that speak to women, especially women in the workplace today, are very much about, well, Sheryl Sandberg is the classic example, right? Women do more. Empower, yeah. yeah, that's right. Empower yourself. If you just acquire enough skills and confidence and tools, you can do anything. Well, it's bullshit. You know, yes. And there's still the systems we're part of. And I think what's powerful about your book is that both things are true. We can do a lot to empower ourselves and to, you know, you know, be as, you know, kind of fulfill our own potential. And we also need to be able to acknowledge the limits to this, you know, the, the, to the systems we're part of, to challenging this myth of meritocracy. Yeah. And I see a lot of people, especially women of color, that dare to use their voice to speak up about the limits to, to uh, meritocracy or to speak up about the ongoing racism and sexism in their environments, often being scapegoated and sort of minimized and dismissed even further. And so that's really problematic how workplace systems often punish those that speak out, especially people in our identities. And I just really want to name that and how that's also a failure of, you know, you know, the, the message from women like Sheryl Sandberg, you got to be in a certain position to be able to speak up and be heard too. Right. Yeah, I think we're in a moment, you know, especially, you know, with the companies and the people that I spoke with and I interviewed where 
especially to, let's talk about two years ago, exactly this day, right? After George Floyd's murder, there were a lot of soundings that happened in the US, right? A lot of companies held space to hear from the, their black and brown employees. And when I sometimes work with executives, they'll say, we, we held soundings, we know how our employees feel. But I'll, if I go in and have conversations with those, any of us, you know, it, you go in and have a conversation, you're gonna get a different set of stories because we ask different questions and we hold yeah. space differently. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a mismatch, right, in, in, in that. I also think one of the things I talk about is there's no real benefit right now in workplaces and a lot of institutions to telling our truth. There hasn't really been space to tell our truth and it hasn't been rewarded. You know, in some ways I call that the shadow side of trailblazing. Like we heralded all these people who've made it to the top, right? But we don't talk about the challenges and the things that they've had to suffer through. And yes, the systems and processes, there's a whole chapter dedicated to this, how the systems are really broken. Um, you know, 97% of the women that I interviewed said things like, there isn't a way that inclusion is working in my company and I can't find a way to speak up. When I speak up, there's backlash. And so many of the women of color I interview have had real backlash when they talk about incidents of racism or file complaints. Mm -hmm. So there is advice around how we need to improve that. We need outside investigators to come in. We need to really look at who's sitting in HR seats because a lot of the people who yeah. are investigating incidents of racism don't have experience with it. So they just dismiss it as not that big a deal or not that important. So I think it's, it's a very confused moment that we're in to kind of really unpack all of that. But yes, I would say in general, um, a lot of workplace processes are set up to protect the company or protect the entity and not protect the employees. And that's part of what has to shift and part of what we need to really unpack and have space to talk about first. Mm -hmm. And I would go even as far as to say, you know, what's good for women of color or your most minoritized employees is good practice for yeah. everybody. Like, you know, this, this yeah. idea that equity is siloed off as a separate kind of area of practice drives me nuts because it's, it's at the core of good organizational culture and practice. You know, you that's what's been really interesting. You know, I wrote the book for women of color and, you know, we can also unpack what that term is. That term is fraught with challenge as well. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of who has picked it up has been white leaders or other, you know, people I didn't expect. And I say that to say, I think in this moment coming, you know, and I say emerging from COVID, but you can never say that. Emerging from COVID, I think everyone is asking the space that work takes in our lives and how we want to work and what does it really mean to show up and what is our life's work? And it's made many of us question, almost everybody I'm meeting with, what does work look like and is it working for anybody, right? And, and to be fair, like the conversations I'm having with a lot of white men, they're saying to me, it doesn't work for me either. People of my generation and younger, they want to be home more. They want to raise their children. They, they want a different way of working as well. So yeah, part of the message in the book is I almost feel like women of color are like the canary in the coal mine. I don't use that phrase in the book, but we're the ones that are kind of raising our hands or saying, but it's not working for anybody, right? Okay. It's, it's part of it. And my work, although focused on women of color, is very much about making workplaces work for all people. And I think if we make them work, to your point, for the, for the group or one of the groups that it's definitely not working for, hopefully it'll get better for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, really crucial point. Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really important point that if we could just, um, that this is not an issue for women of color, that this is an issue that affects all of us. And if we can do what works for women of color, as well as other minority um, groups, then we're benefiting everybody. Like it benefits everybody. Yeah. yeah, you know, and you talked on, talk, touch on it before, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to break up and have a conversation around is how some of the principles of capitalism don't really work at all, or how some of the delusions, I call them delusions in the book in chapter one, how the things that we have built the workplace on 
really need to be questioned. We're in a moment where we've just kind of inherited what's existed for decades, if not centuries. And like, why aren't we asking questions about that? And so, you know, the one, the one thing that comes up in some of these discussions, and there's actually new research that came out last week that re, it's not a new study, but it just kind of re-emphasized the, the data. It said that a lot of white men and companies in particular are very worried that inclusion actually, you know, doesn't include them, that inclusion practices, you know, marginalize them or it's taking from them. And one of the delusions that I talk about in the book is this idea that we're, that it's a set pie that we're taking from one group to give to another. And those are the kinds of principles. Those are the kinds of things that I think we have to really rethink in our workplace. And that's only going to help everybody, not just, you know, women of color. Um, mm -hmm. Some of how, what it's been built on the principles, the idea that, you know, there's 12 seats at the table. And so we have to fight for the one remaining one, like who's, who agreed with that? Who decided that, right? The way that, even review processes work, the way that HR processes work, like all these things, I think um, we've just kind of kept going with what exists. And are we in a moment where we need to ask different questions and really start to question even some of the basics of how workplaces are built and who they were made for? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's part of also what I'm trying to unpack. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's what separates your book as well is that you talk about, you know, the goal isn't just to get more representation, but the goal is to change the, the core of the systems and the way they operate. And so you talk a lot about power and what is the kind of power that we're really, you know, going for here and what's going to be transformative, what's going to benefit all of us. And maybe say yeah. a little more about that, because I, I think that's yeah. really important, especially in this moment of climate change and, and shootings and unfettered capitalism, you know, what are we, inclusion for what, for yeah, what? Purpose? Yeah, I'll just, there's a story in the, just a line, it's a quick line, but I, I don't usually talk about it, but just because you've brought up capitalism a couple of times, I work with this teacher, I call him a teacher, he's kind of just, you know, this, this wise man, I'll just, I'll just say that, um, that we, I meet with every, you know, once in a while, we have like three or four hour conversations. And he once said to me, like, you know, a two by four has a, a price tag. You can go to like a, a Home Depot here and go buy a two by four. And mm -hmm. you can, you know, sometimes buy a tree, but a tree that just exists in nature, like what's the price of cutting it down? What's the price of it being there? And mm -hmm. so even our whole like currency system, like what we value is, you know, really been set up in a certain way that we've never really questioned. And so just as an example of what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about power. You know, I'm really asking different questions about, again, what we value, what we see as powerful, what we really want. And part of my messaging to women of color is that message around we've gotten to the seat and don't feel powerful. Maybe that definition of power that we're aspiring to doesn't really work for us and is not something we want. So many of the women were told exactly as you were, you have to work two or four times as hard just to get the seat at the table. But is that even a seat we want once we get there? And to your point, we're sick and we're burnt out as, as we're climbing. So it's really asking different questions about what works for us. Do the values and the things we've been taught to aspire to, do our definition of success, which is, you know, we're having new conversations about how the, that's a lot of that's based on white supremacy here, you know, and, and so really trying to unpack that and have different conversations about what those things mean to us and what truly makes us feel powerful. And what makes me feel powerful is going to be very different than you. And I think for a lot of women of color, what I'm talking about is power is just setting boundaries. It's just saying no and just really stopping and questioning what we've been taught to aspire to and saying, I want to really figure out for myself what I want and what that looks like for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the more each of us do that, the more it sets up a different pattern in the systems are part of because we start to, you know, the more I can reclaim what feels true for myself and a part of myself that I maybe in the past have marginalized in my place of work, the more I start to shift the way things are. 
I wasn't planning to speak about, about this, but I'll say, because I think it's a really interesting conversation that in the conversations about undoing forms of oppression, even the conversations themselves get scripted or get, what would I say, uh, sort of become patternized. And so let me just unpack this for a moment. So I think about patriarchy as a system. We talk about the ways it impacts women in many different ways, but we don't talk as much about the ways that it impacts men and the parts of like uh, the, the losses that men experience um, under a system of patriarchy and that the price that men pay, that's very different than women. I'm not equating them because I think they're very different sort of costs, but there's still a price that's paid under white supremacy. There's a price that white people pay in under that system that we don't often talk about. So I think about one way of thinking about undoing these systems of oppression that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, reclaiming wholeness for anyone is a revolutionary act. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to bring it back to sort of this idea of, of power, I think about that, you know, sometimes that when I really, yeah. I, you know, when I really step into what I think is true for me, and I reclaim those emotions or those parts of my experience that I feel don't have a place here, that's sometimes the most revolutionary thing I can do because I'm modeling in that moment what the system has rejected and what the people in the system have had to reject. Yeah. And Absolutely. so I guess, yeah, I'm sort of tying a number of things together, but I think, yeah. Yeah, these are, com these are complicated topics. Yeah, so I'm not sure they're easy to unpack in two sentences, but yes, yeah, so a lot of what I found with the women is that they had rejected parts of themselves, right? So I tell a story um, of Lisa, uh, where she is a Taiwanese American, and she felt a lot of shame about being Asian and hid those parts of herself. And then Rose in her company got to the partner level, you know, at a very well-known firm. And then to get to the senior partner level, she was told she didn't have gravitas. You know, she didn't have that it factor. And yet she had sacrificed so much and like hidden so many parts of herself. And she started to really unpack, like, I've done everything I was taught to do. I went to the best schools. I, you know, whitewashed myself in some ways. Like I did all of the things and I'm still not enough. What is that really about? And what have I given up to get here? Right. Again, that, that yeah. question of powerlessness. Yeah. yeah. So many of these women, and you know, I talk about this a little bit, we've been taught to put aside where we come from, who we are, what our backgrounds are, what our families are, you know, even our personal lives, like a lot of women in general, not just women of color, we'll talk about, I'm talking about my kids or, you know, the things that are really important to me because I want to be seen as powerful at work. Mm -hmm. And part of this is reclaiming the parts that matter to you, right? And that we come from cultures of wisdom. You know, I often tell a story, I come from Kerala, India, right? where Ayurveda was born and, you know, we, we didn't really practice it at home. We didn't really talk about it because that, you know, in America, we wanted to fit in. And yet like now it's like a multi-billion dollar business, right? It's like now cool and in fashion. And so it's like a really interesting where there's been so much energy to put aside the things and the histories and the places we come from, what we know innately, right? Like what, what heals us, what we, you know, what, what the wisdom was. And now in some ways, maybe we're coming back to some of that, but we're not even the ones in some cases coming back to that. It's a really fascinating conversation, but yeah, I mean, the conversation of power is I would interview all of these women. And when I would say, what do you think of power? They would literally sit back in their seat or they would like really, you know, get really uncomfortable because our definitions of power, what we've been taught is power is top down. Power is authoritative. Power is a Machiavellian, you know, beliefs around power or the 48 rules that it's very aggressive. And, um, 
It's by taking advantage of people. And women of color that I interviewed don't want that definition of power. And yet we don't have an alternative, right? We don't really have not really, you know, been defined in a different way. And so yeah. part of what I'm trying to say is those definitions of power were wrong. They're, you know, they don't work for the they don't work for most people, right? But we've just been taught that's what we should aspire to. And that's what success looks like. And that's what's going to make us happy. But maybe we need to come up with a new definition. And so I talk about three or four ideas around that. I'm just starting the conversation. You know, one of them is I interviewed Stacey Brown Philpott and she's the CEO, former CEO of TaskRabbit here in the States. And she sits on a number of boards, really powerful women. And um, she told me a story the week that I interviewed her. She had her family had just bought a puppy named Fifi. She didn't want the puppy, puppy, her family did her two kids and her husband. And yet like on day six, when I interviewed her, the puppy was following her everywhere. And she said, I think it's because I set really clear boundaries, but I'm also approachable. And we had this whole conversation about power. Like, could power be like that? Does power have to be like, I'm telling the puppy what to do all the time and I'm yelling at it? Or is power more about making people feel safe and yet setting boundaries? And this idea of psychological safety. And so it's an example of how I think the models that we have for leadership and the models we have for power just don't work for a lot of us. So we don't want them. And we, but yet we don't know exactly what something else could look like, right? And so it's a little bit of talking about that. And, and again, back to this idea that institutions can also be redrawn and redone, that we don't have to accept what's around us, but we have to work together to change it. But I think most of us just come into the world thinking the things we're taught are what, you know, are the way that they have to be. And I guess I come from a place where I think anything can be redone and redrawn, but we have to, there's a lot of work to be done and we have to work together to do it, but it can be, you know, like we don't have to take anything as given. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Yeah, I think if I if I go back to what I, I was trying in a clumsy way to say a couple minutes ago, it's it's that idea. Yeah, power literacy is I think just coming into parlance yeah. in our culture, as you're describing, and us becoming acquainted with the many dimensions of what power can look like. And to me, empowerment is that ability to like, discern what form of power is is going to help me and the people in front of me most in this moment and not limiting myself to one or two forms of power that are you know visible or permissible in the environment that I'm in and sometimes it is quite frankly drawing a line and you know I've had to really sit through some very real moments of discomfort in my identity as a woman of color where I pull authority because you know, we're still in a world where people don't like a woman of color just saying, no, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen the way you want to do it. But also in other environments, just having access to be able to be deeply compassionate mm -hmm. and just really soft and not to be afraid of that part of myself because it might be seen as being weaker. Right. So having access to this multiplicity of what power can look like and the discernment to use what's needed. Like, I feel like that's where we need to move to. And it's a lot of unpacking and having, working within our systems to unlearn what so many of us, as you have many articulated so much through this conversation to unlearn what we've been taught, yeah. um, to unlearn what our organization, how our organizations operate um, in service of hopefully a more fundamentally um, interdependent and collective future where we're not living off the backs of so many people yeah. in so many communities and especially living off the backs of so many women of color that are working tirelessly and endlessly to, to feed this beast called capitalism that you know 
Um, we have a very narrow definition of power and a very narrow definition of leadership. And all I'm saying is there's other ways of leading, right? I, I do an exercise when I talk in front of people, like groups sometimes where I say, what do you think of when I say the word leader? You know, when I think, and then I'll, you know, unpack that a little bit and I'll say politician, professor, pilot. It's always this very white male, five, 10 and taller dressed in like a uniform or a power suit. I'll, you know, I'm fast forwarding, giving away my, my secret, but at the end of the presentation, I'll say, and now I want you to talk about someone you admire, like who comes to mind. And yeah. it's usually a mother or a grandmother or a neighbor or like a teacher, yeah. um, you know, male or female, or, you know, it, it doesn't, or, you know, any age, it's not, it's not that specific, but it's mm -hmm. a wider definition. And why aren't the things that the people we admire, the same ones that we call leaders. And so it's really just kind of widening that definition, widening that space, really kind of thinking about it differently. Yeah. 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 And it's circular. Cause I think if we were able to do that, then many women of color, especially in a community context, would get the recognition they deserve for the for that different kind of leadership that they occupy. You know, I think about my mother-in-law that speaks uh, accented, imperfect English, who, like you describe, is the one that holds the entire extended family together. And gosh, do I hope, wish I could be her one day, because of, you know what she's able to accomplish in the space of a given day is far beyond what I feel like yeah. I still I'm able to do in a course of one of my days. And yet, yeah. and yet, there's very few places that she can walk in and be at all visible, right? Yeah. According to so, I think this is what you're you're saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that story is exactly right. like so. Right. I was a very powerful person. Right. And when I when I had my title and my role, the same time, I remember all, often like and I, I lived in airports in that role. So if I went to I went on a flight super early in the morning or you know after hours where I wasn't dressed in my power suit, and my heels, I can't remember how many times I'd be told you're in the wrong line when I was in the elite line. Right. Or, you know, just look down upon. Right. Just because I'm I'm five one, you know, I'm woman of color, if I'm not in my, you know, armor of, of what people see as power, like, yeah, I'm very much dismissed and marginalized or get bumped around even. Right. And so it's really interesting, like how you take that space and what we, what we respect and what we uphold and who we give space to. I, I watch it a lot now, you know, like who has permission or who, you know, um, I yeah. guess just who takes up space, right? And I don't even know that it's privilege. I think it's just some of us have been taught we we can't take it. And so it's really interesting if you just are sitting around at a restaurant or at an airport and just to watch like how people take up space and who takes up space. We have been taught from a young age as little, you know, black and brown girls not to take up space and to be smaller, right? Versus take up full space. And so I think that's part of what this conversation is about. Yeah, that's right. And then if we do to be... Uh okay with the consequences. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, if you're okay, Deepa, um, yeah. I'm going to open it up to just reflections, questions, comments from our community here. And that can come through chat or anyone that would just like to, to um, speak, you're welcome to do so. And Emma will kind of notice who's got their hand up. You can use the reactions button on your Zoom panel. Um, and just raise your hand that way or um, a thumbs up or whatever, or you can just raise it visually because we can also see you. I'm looking at Emma Lind, my colleague, Emma Lind, whose birthday it also is today, by the way, everybody. <laughs> I have never met anyone who has I share a birthday with, I share it with Emma. <gasps> Uh, and uh, I bet Emma Lind has a thought. I do. No, 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 Tolu. I, I see your hand. Um, I wasn't yeah. going to be first to speak. So, that, um, Tolu, am I pronouncing your name right? I saw you had yeah. your hand. Yeah. 
Yes, thank you. Um, I actually don't have a question. I just want to say thank you so much for this opportunity to, to connect with Sway. I had such a similar experience and I, you know, to your point on, on us not talking about it enough, where, you know, I, I ended up quitting my job and having, I learned to golf. <laughs> I quite literally had nothing else on the go. Um, it, it's so, I definitely need to read your book because it's so powerful to hear you speak about this because I thought that, like, I knew that this happened to other, other people, but I didn't realize how far wide and reaching that was and how powerful that was. And so I just, I just needed to express my gratitude for, for everything you're discussing for sharing that story because it, um, it resonated with me so deeply. And um, yes, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, when people say like in one line or less, what did you want the book to do? I wanted women of color to not feel so alone. Right. Cause I think we all think it's just us and we're embarrassed when things happen to us, even when we didn't create them, right? Like we, we instantly go to that shame feeling for whatever reason, and it's not ours to own. And so how do we give that back? So thank you for that. Uh, I see, um, and someone else has to, I am not good at facilitating all the hands. So I'm gonna, <laughs> Jasmine, do you wanna go first or? Thank you. Um, sure, I am just kind of building off of uh, what Tolu Hood said and your, your point about how this, striving to fit into something that you inherently don't fit um, is making us sick that that really resonated and to to know that it's mm -hmm. that it's a, a pattern mm -hmm. is really really interesting um one that i i think it's so easy to to individualize mm -hmm. yeah so, i think it's yeah. an epidemic for sure you know i i sometimes now I, I did not write this in the book but now when i get asked questions or do podcasts I have a new definition of success. Like I, for me, success used to be like rising, right? You know, getting more promotions and, you know, getting more money and all the things that come when you're in a corporate structure. And that's kind of how, how you're valued and, you know, rewarded. Mm -hmm. um, and now I think if I was to ever go back, like to me, health has to be part of how I define success. And for me, there were two different things before. And I think for a lot of us, the pandemic has opened up a space where those things are much more connected than I think we ever realized. Mm -hmm. And that you can't sacrifice one, you can't sacrifice your health just to rise because you know you can't ever get it back but even though I knew that I would just dismiss it and just keep working right and so it's almost those realizations I think are really important and I think for women of color as yeah. um as we talked about when you're taught to just work harder and harder it's really hard to, it's easy to dismiss that yeah so easy to take health for granted but it, you know we we can put that effort in another day yeah so thank you and then I think we've got Rebecca next Hi. Yeah, I've just started reading your book and I have a reflection as well. I grew up with a finance mom. So my mom for most of my life was a hedge fund manager. And it was very interesting. So reading your book first, I, it was giving me a lot of language to how I watched my mom live her life, and what she experienced. But even in this conversation, I realized she held those two forms of power she would go into work and kind of put on this mask or what she would like to call it. Um, She's working in a very male dominated area. She would say, well, I have to become a man when I'm at work. And then would come home and be community power. And I think that took a big toll on her to try and figure out how to balance those two things um, and to delineate them. And I think, you know, when she finally left the sector, she didn't leave the way she wanted to. I think she one day she went into work, she was like, I can't take this anymore. She moved from the Middle East to Canada. It was very different um, because the two forms were bleeding into each other and she was finding that 
she couldn't be the person she wanted to be privately or in her home or the person she wanted to be at work. Um, and so to kind of read your book and hear your conversation is also very, um, it's very interesting for me. So once I'm done, I'm definitely passing on to her to say, mm. okay, I'm finding statistics and words for what you went through. So I really, really appreciate mm. that. And I think as a child of a, a parent that went through that, it also makes me feel a little closer mm. and give up, maybe cut my mom a little bit of slack for uh, some of the things I kind of held her up for when I was a kid. Mm. So I just wanted to share that reflection. Oh, I love that. I've not heard that, Rebecca. So you're the first one who's kind of had a mother in that, you know, and could kind of reflect back. So I love that. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I, we didn't get into that. We got into it a little bit on heat, I think, with what we talked about. But one, and I didn't unpack it a lot in the book because there were so many different groups I was trying to talk about. Right. When you say women of color, it means so many different things. But the immigrant women I talked to, like there was just this whole other sphere of what the expectations were at home that I don't think a lot of us fully understand, right? So many of the immigrant women, especially from Asian or Middle Eastern families in particular, they couldn't get outside help. So there was an expectation. They personally had to do the cooking. They personally had to do the cleaning. Like, whereas at least some of the other women I interviewed, they could, you know, they could get help or the community pitch in a different way. There was a value associated with if you did the cooking for, you know, that is very different, I think, in some communities. And so, yeah, that dichotomy is real and it's hard to navigate. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Emmeline. Hi, Diva. I wanted to offer thanks for the invitation you're extending to all of us to have bigger and more critical imaginations. Over and over again, you've said something along the lines of, you know, we don't have to accept it just because that's the way it is. We don't have to, you know, be held up to these definitions of power just because they exist. Like we're allowed to dream bigger. And, um, there's just something so exciting and revolutionary about that. So I really wanted to thank you for that. As you were talking um, about, you, you mentioned with a tone of surprise that white men were, were compelled by the book and uh, resonating with some of its conclusions. I wanted to know if while writing it, while doing the research, what surprised you? Yeah, you know, I think what surprised me was uh, some of what I shared. So one, that so many of the women were sick, right? Because I thought that would, I did not expect that to be universal in the way that I found it to be, because that was my own story, right? So to see that was really almost shocking, shocking and freeing at the same time, very confusing, because I thought that was very much my own story. I think the other thing, the second most surprising thing, and I say this in the book, literally in this language, so if you've read it, it's, it's not going to be new, but is um, women helping each other. So the second most shocking thing is if we get to the end of the interviews and I would say, is there anything else you want to share? And the women, again, with the shame, high, high in, in full, full you know, glare, would look down at their shoes or look down at their feet and they would say, can you talk about how uh, white women have been our biggest obstacles or even as women of color, we don't help each other. So, you know, Indian women hurt black women, you know, even within the black community, they don't help. It, would, it was all down the road, you know, down the line. And so I didn't spend a ton of energy unpacking that. I do talk about it. And we ended up doing research in the fall with Billie Jean King, who's a famous, you know, the famous tennis player and her leadership initiative to really look at that. And so coming out of the book, we did this research and interviewed 1700 women, both women of color and white women. And I think there's so much there about how we are, I don't want to say we're hurting each other. I think we're just so focused on trying to get by, trying to make it work, trying to take our one seat without realizing that we're competing for that seat. Um, and so that was really surprising to me. And I think probably one of the sadder things of the book, right? Like how do we, because we can't change this. We, we're all, 
you know, we've all, I want to almost been brainwashed so that the women that come into the system are doing the same thing than the vet, you know, the, the, how the set system was set up and how it doesn't work. And we're almost recreating that. So um, that was a little bit shocking and surprising. I think the last thing was just the extent to the extra work that women of color are doing. So we didn't really talk about that. Um, it's a known issue, right? That women of color tend to do a lot of extra, what I call office housework or other activities. Um, but some of the things I just wasn't prepared for. So there's one story I tell over and over again um, that I'll tell briefly here. Uh, a black woman in the Midwest, she knew when she joined her company, a consumer products company, she was the only black woman in her department. As she spent six months, she became to she gave to know she was the only black woman in the entire company. Um, and as we were talking, almost an hour, I spent two hours with her, almost an hour, and she started crying um, quite significantly or quite heavily. And she said, I didn't realize until this conversation how much I do. And so she said, I changed my hair, my clothes, what I talk about, what I eat at lunch, you know, what I bring to work. I just went through the list of 12 things. And she said, Deepa, I'm an accountant. I'm not an HR person. I'm not a comms person. And yet my job has become to make sure all my white colleagues who've never met another black person. She said, I don't believe there's any other black people in our community. I am the representative of the race is what I call in the book. I have to make sure everyone has a good experience because I feel responsible for that. The weight of that was so heavy. And I think it's for me is like one of the most profound stories about the extra, the things that have nothing to do with the job that we're hired to do and how it's profoundly different for people of color, women of color. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. Sorry, one last question. Mm -hmm. What's the next book? <laughs> people have been asking me that. Um, I'm a first time author, so this is all really new. I want, I think, you know, I've been saying this, so you'll let me know if it resonates. I want to write a book on toxic workplaces. I think everyone's talking about it, but we don't really know what that is. Know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I really kind of, yeah, no, really just unpacking what that means, what that looks like, how it's not just for women of color. I did a recent piece for HBR called Toxic Rock Stars, and it went viral, this idea that companies reward performance over bad behavior. Um, and so I just think there's something there to that, but really, really having more thoughtful conversations about what is toxicity in our current workplace look like and what does that really mean and what do we do about it? But we'll see. I, I'm going to take the summer and, and see if that sits right. So I see pre-orders in the chat ready to get <laughs> uh, placed. So I think, I think you've got it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is, yeah, that's so, so uh, on point, um, Deepa. Good to know. <laughs> I see, uh, oh, oh, Emma, I'll let you do your job. Yeah, no worries. Um, Ruby, would you like to ask a question? Yeah, I put my hand up when you started talking about toxic workplaces. So um, that, you know, a lot of what you've talked about today resonated with me. I too also grew up in a, a community where I was one of the few people of color. Um, I deal with my, my name obviously is not very Indian. And um, it's funny when I, you know, a lot of times I'll communicate with people over email and then they see me uh, either on Zoom or they meet me in person and they have a visible reaction because I guess I don't sound very Indian either. And so, um, and, you know, talking about toxic workplaces, you know, one of the things that I struggle with is like I work for an organization that really talks and promotes DEI, but yet in our workplace, it doesn't actually exist. Um, you know, they'll take DEI initiatives, but yet they pick all white people 
you know, they, they think that they're, they're, they're doing the DEI work because they pick white women. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it just, it's really frustrating. And so it's been really informative and I've really enjoyed this today. And I hope that uh, you continue doing more of this type of work. And I plan, I've just ordered your book on Amazon. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough, you know, I came into this you know, three years ago when, when this kind of started to be a thought I wanted to do thinking, you know, there's not going to be much for me to write because so many companies are focused on inclusion and they're putting the money in and all of that. Um, and yeah, over and over and over again, I think there is a lot of performative work on inclusion. I think there's a lot of dollars, you know, in some cases being spent without a lot of effort, because I also think we haven't really unpacked what we're trying to solve for. You know, I often say we don't know what the work is right yet. I think we're still understanding that um, in companies, at least, right? Just just what, what they have to do to change. And it sometimes feels monumental. And it sometimes feels like we're doing the wrong thing. So I think there's a lot of running around, but I'm not I'm not convinced it's all, you know, half of it's the right things. And so getting people who actually know what the work is to help companies, I think is the, is the next step to this. And Anahit, I'm going to follow back with you because now what's happening is I go into all these companies, I've done maybe 200 of these talks in companies, and now they're all coming back and saying, can you help us fix it? <laughs> I don't have a plan for that yet. So if you want to help fix it with me, we can go do that. Start with an audit. <laughs> <laughs> Get yourself a report card and then, then go. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh it's I, I yeah you're right on the money there yeah and I know a lot of people here can really relate to that other reflections thoughts stories um there's a few comments in chat Deepa I don't know if you can see this but Elise I see just saying how um a lot of the conclusions so true so valuable for example how to revise success and question received notions of how power should work have been discussed in depth in feminism and a variety of anti-capitalist movements yep and I think integrating that thinking with this perspective can absolutely, this is not new analysis here. It is important to say that a lot of um, movements for change have started these conversations 30 years ago that are now starting to just percolate into the mainstream. So thank you for that perspective, Elise. Isabel, I see, want to add this entire conversation really resonated. I'm an immigrant who identifies as white Latina, only recently realized my coworkers don't see me as white. Uh-huh. Isabel, there's no, I'm wondering if you want to put any words around that. Obviously, no uh, pressure, but if you'd like to say anything around what you've written here, it's a really powerful perspective. I don't know if Isabel is still here. Coming off, coming on screen. Sorry, I was just having a snack. I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's that time of day, at least in Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's lunchtime. Yeah, so. Uh, I'm in Canada as well. I came to Canada as a, as a teenager and um, started working in mainly male-dominated industries. And, um, you know, it's, it's always, it's interesting that you see a pattern in your life and, and others think, well, if this has happened to you, it doesn't mean that um, that is systemic, right? Like you can't say that whatever is, is happening to you is because of sexism or, or racism. I've uh, only recently uh, come to terms with the fact that a lot of uh, my experiences and the experiences of my mother, especially, uh, my mother is not in Canada, she's in Europe, but she's she has a heavier accent. And uh, a lot of people, you're a Latina in the workplace, and you're automatically assigned as the person who cleans things and the person who is um, 
responsible for coffee for everybody. And so I've only recently come to terms that our experiences and especially my mother's experience have been uh, racialized experiences, even though we um, identify um, as white in, in Latin America. So this is uh, kind of new and we've been, uh, you know, I've been incorporating this idea, especially as there's more, a lot more equity and inclusion work happening um, in my work right now. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I would say, um, you know, I, I mentioned this briefly in the book, but for the Latino women I interviewed, and we actually, so the company I founded, Information, we did a, a safe space conversation a few months ago because some of our white Latina sisters said, you know, the term women of color is a real hard term for us. Like it doesn't really resonate because I'm white passing is a language that some of them used. Um, and so we had a big conversation about what does it mean to be a woman of color? And is that even a label that we can use? Um, and I, in some of the, with some of the Latina women I interviewed, they would say things and I've said, I've repeated this and I've been told, you know, I've gotten some pushback around it, but I'll share what, what they shared with me. They feel like the identity of Latina is even harder because it covers multiple races, right? It covers so many different countries and even different languages and the complexity of the identity itself. And so as I interviewed more white passing Latinas, they struggled with, you know, do they even embrace, you know, being called Latina in the workplace or, you know, what is, what is the challenge around privilege? Because of the passing component. So I think there's a lot more for the women that I interviewed that are really struggling and trying to unpack that, especially in this moment that makes the identity even more complicated in certain settings, so. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can um, finish with a th any thoughts around what would be helpful moving forward? And you know what would be helpful moving forward to support women of color in the workplace and maybe just any other mm -hmm. general thoughts. And I, I will start with, I mean, there's many answers to that question, but what comes to mind for me is, practice the micro interruptions. You know, the policies and the broader um, system interventions are important, but it starts with actually noticing as, as Deepa pointed out earlier, what happens in, on, on the ground, the accumulated moments that, that people have to shoulder. And I'll give an example of a moment where I realized how much I unconsciously swallowed without realizing it. I was doing a session out of town and I was setting up, um, this is pre-pandemic, so I'm setting up the computer and the cord and all this stuff. It's obvious that I'm there to deliver the presentation because it's I have my stuff all around me. And anyone that knows me knows that I'm not confined to a little. And the um, event organizer came and I was with my one of our my um, white colleagues' employees in this case. And the event coordinator came over and asked my colleague, as always happens, you know, what do you need? And da 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 da, da and continued just exclusively talking to, to her, even though, and the moment stood out for me because for the first time in my entire professional career, my white colleague looked at this event coordinator and said, actually, I need you to ask Anahid because she's the one doing the presentation and she can tell you what she needs and did it in this really matter-of-fact, non-dramatic, um, but very clearly boundaried, I'm not going to, I'm not going to facilitate your exclusionary behavior in this moment. And I think that we can all notice and step up. And I talk about this a lot in the sessions we do, how we need to get comfortable with discomfort to change the systems we're a part of. Well, Anyone who's in a minoritized identity, whether it's female or GLBTQ2IA or whether um, uh, um, learning disability, we know intimately what those moments of discomfort feel like because we regularly swallow them. But being an ally and working for change means also 
being comfortable with discomfort. So that would be my, my number one easy to do. And it means maybe it's not always the most comfortable thing, but that's how we start to shift the patterns, the oppressive patterns that people, people in minoritized identities have to swallow and carry. We can um, take a little bit of that on our own backs. Yeah, and I might just add, um, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about the power of me and the power of we, that you need to do the work on yourself and figure out what matters to you, but then you need to find others. And for women of color, it's maybe finding other women of color to have these conversations and share stories I see in the chat. It's finding other women to kind of help make change and even finding, you know, allies or co-conspirators, as I call them in the book, to help change on the system. So you can't do it by yourself. It's finding both components. But Anahi, to kind of build on yours, one of the things um, that I really talk about quite a bit in the book is the microaggressions, because I really wanted to tell the stories. And you've told some, you know, a couple of examples today that were beautiful and would fit so nicely into the chapters because they're so common um, and happen all the time. But one of the things I work with women of color on doing is having them practice what they're going to say in those in, in those situations, right? So knowing we are going to face racist and microaggressive incidents in the next, you know, few weeks, next few months. Write literally write down three things you can say or do when they come up, you know, like what just happened really bothered me. Can you please speak to me to take your example, or I need you to really just pause and realize I'm the one giving the presentation, you know, whatever that looks like for you, but to have three things like that practice that you can adjust, but to actually practice saying them out loud, because sometimes we're, when we're in those moments, we get caught flat footed, we don't know what to say. What I've started to say, though, I need is, is I want um, allies or co-conspirators to practice those things too. So in your example, like if you see something that's happening in a meeting or in a Zoom session, what can you do to intervene? What are the three things you can say or three things you can do? And But you need to practice too. Because just like I said in the beginning where these women of color had never talked about race at work, most of the white colleagues and leaders that I work with have never talked about race at work either. So they don't know what to do when they see something. They know it's not right. They, they're uncomfortable too. We're all looking at and trying to make eye contact. We don't know what to say. So literally write out three things like you know what was just said bothers me can we pause the meeting I need to unpack what was just said those could be three things but practicing them out loud so that next time you know how to just kind of hold space for others or to stop the moment because we just most of us just let these things go we know they're wrong we let them go and we need to do better to your point in the moment saying something mm -hmm. that's yeah very well uh well articulated i'm noticing are you okay to take a couple more thoughts deepa i i noticed and i think you're right by the way we are very comfortable talking about gender but race is a whole different thing especially in the u.s context mm -hmm. well, same here <laughs> emma go ahead yeah there's um a question from bipasha i know you're having some tech issues so i'm gonna spotlight you bipasha let me know if you have any issues hi everybody Thank you so much for um, giving me the opportunity to, to say a few things. I do wanna say like so many others, this has been a fantastic enlightening conversation. I think so much, um, many of us, including myself, uh, I can relate to. I do know, and Anahi will know this as she's married to my brother, Shaquille. <laughs> we grew up in very small white, um, predominantly dominated communities, uh, both in Saskatchewan and in rural Ontario. And despite us having, and I can't say that I've, I've actually experienced racism growing up there, to be honest, Shaquille will, may have some other perspectives on that for himself, but I do recall just feeling isolated because we didn't have anybody that looked like us, that spoke like us, that understood us, that understood the, 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 the generational cross-cultural differences between what our parents thought was you know how we were supposed to behave and it, because I'm the eldest daughter in our family 
a lot of the pressure lay in on a heat shaking machine. She knows a lot of it would fall on me because my mom, I won't get into the whole bit of it, but my parents at the crux of it, it was an interreligious marriage. So my dad converted to Islam because he wanted to marry my mom and my mom has always been Muslim. So really we, we grew up in, in a, I would say we were taught sort of, um, you know, the Quran and all that sort of thing, but there was a lot of conflict, but regardless, it was, I think she was in a state of depression for sure. Um, we had no relatives that were close by. Um, everyone was back home. I think the best thing that they did for us though, was they would take us to Pakistan over the summers. And that's where we felt like, A, we have a family and we have people that we've never met, but they just adore us. And, mm -hmm. and I think that helped ground us, but also being able to be there, we were able to see like how privileged we were growing up where we did because it was really difficult to see child labor in the household, right? Because you'd have these very, obviously we know there's a huge amount of impoverished communities there. So I think for us as kids, we had a really tough time, Like we wanted to clean the floors with them. Like it was just so foreign to us. But, you know, coming back then it was harder because you come back to these communities where you lost all that connection. And the big things for us was like, if we could ever get back to Toronto and see good family friends, that was sort of the highlights for us. With respect to things around microaggressions, I do recall, I, I was a co-op student working for the Department of International Affairs and International Trade back at, many years ago. And I do recall this um, white senior foreign service officer coming into our, into, our, um, into our team and introducing herself. She had this line up. And when it came to me, I was trying to pronounce, I was pronouncing my name because she keep asking me, pardon? Like I'd say, it's Papasha. And she goes, pardon? And she's literally in front of my face. It's not like she's, you know, a, a far distance away. And she just decides to rename me Patricia. And since that day, I have taught my children and they have Desi names. So I have taught them to be proud of their names. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you need to, to change it for them and take pride in it. Um, and lastly, the last example I'm gonna leave you with, I was fortunate enough to be um, a representative of the University of Waterloo on a Team Canada trade mission to Asia under Dieu um, Chrétien when he was leading the, all the premiers, this huge business delegation. And I was um, probably one of five graduate students in the country that got to go. And I was the only one without my president though. So I had to promote all of UW's programs abroad, the heads of state and so on and so on. But I became the target. Um, actually, a lot of the women were, but I think me in particular got this special treatment because I was young, I was brown, and you get these big white males that are, these are very, very powerful people, like people that knew just, you know, um, Pierre Trudeau, like I'm talking like heavyweights and they were so obnoxious. And I, and I really had a hard time with that because it was like, there was good people on the, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everybody was like that, but I, I felt like I was being targeted for that because of those, the cross-sectional sort of the race, the gender, being young, et cetera. And it was really, um, it was really difficult to deal with. So you really, and, and that's that whole piece around, do I fit in here? I felt like an imposter, should I be here? You know, that kind of thing. And so um, I just, all to say that I really value everything that people have been sharing and what you've shared in your book. And I'm actually looking forward to reading it too, as well myself. 
but yeah, I just wanted to leave that out there because I think I think it's good to be able to be in these forums where we can share this um, in a safe space with one another and not feel like we're going to be judged or, or not completely understood. Whereas in other places, you almost have to fall over yourself having to explain things. And, and I'm glad that we don't need to have to do that in this case. So thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think that's, you know, one of the, the easily the biggest learnings is just to be seen and heard, right? Makes such a difference. And so finding those communities and those spaces whenever you can is so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. And I want to echo that, you know, I found myself thinking ahead of this cafe, gosh, you know, is it going to seem too narrow to talk to the experiences of women of color? I need to think about broadening it out to X, Y, and Z. And I challenged myself before the cafe began because I thought, my God, when was the last time I exclusively talked about the experiences of women of color? Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about the experiences of women. And I think, and as we should, we're in the second, you know, what generation of women that have entered the workplace en masse. But it is a growing demographic, um, racialized women, whether mixed race, immigrant, migrant, uh, Indigenous, and I don't know what the numbers are, you would, but a significant portion of our population that, as we have been talking about, are ready and willing and eager to contribute and just, and very little attention paid to the barriers in place for this group. So I am really grateful for everyone who stepped in to risk talking and sharing experience during this session. I think it's really important that we keep this thread of, of the inclusion conversation alive and make it visible and give it more oxygen. On that note, any last, anyone that has not had a chance that just wants to say anything before we close here. Amy, I see your hand up. Thanks, Anahi. Thanks, Deepa. It's been a, a real pleasure to um, hear your experiences and get some insight on being a woman of color, which I cannot relate to uh, in the workplace and, and to really hear some of the, the, the challenges around that. Um, what's coming up for me, uh, I'm studying somatic experiencing. And um, when you mentioned the health impacts, what I learned about most recently is a global high activation pattern, where, which is where the traumatic experience uh, overwhelms your entire central nervous system. And um, some of the uh, examples are like elect electrocution, drowning, <laughs> poisoning, fetal stress, and birth trauma. And the other where the other area that uh, we see this is like things uh, like bullying and racism. So just like to make the connection between what that does to your system and how pervasive it is really struck me. And it's really under under-researched and not really talked about. I think they're just starting to scratch the surface and make the connection, but I just find that like profound how pervasive and overwhelming it is to uh, a nervous system when you're experiencing chronic uh, patterns of not being safe. Mm -hmm. I love that you bring that up, Amy. I actually talk about somatic healing as one of the tools to, to use in the book and that I worked, I talked to a few therapists who exactly described that. Uh, a lot of the women of color are in constant fight or flight. That's kind of what's happening to their bodies, right? And they're not able to complete the process of the adrenaline and all of that. Um, I won't go through that here, but it's that completion process that's required to kind of release it from your body. In addition to the historical and generational trauma that we're also, you know, trying to finally put words to, I think in some cases. And so, yeah, that, that is actually one of the only ways that I have seen women of color really heal themselves is through somatic healing. 
Thanks, Deepa. I'm wondering if you want to just um, read a couple words from your book in closing for us. Oh, um, is, there, is there anything in particular that 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 comes to mind? Oh, I, I can. I just opened the book to a paragraph that I feel is perfect. So I could offer. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is on page 140 and uh, it closes chapter seven. And uh, Deepa, you write now. Well, actually, I'm going to back it up a little bit. For years, I heard that I needed to find female friends and sisterhood, and I ended up finding more than I ever could have imagined. These women helped me realize there was a bigger world beyond the corporate identity I knew. They helped introduce me to women who had left their old lives behind. They helped me through my loneliness and all my self-doubt, and they inspired me to construct a new life for myself. Now I feel that alongside them, I can push on intractable paradigms and change how we do business. To feel supported, we need community. We need community to heal. We need community to be seen, heard, and witnessed. We need community and the compassionate can unleash to address the challenges we see in the business world and beyond it. Once you find the power of me, and find your sisters in the power of we, anything is possible. How perfect, because I feel like you really helped us do that in this session today, Deepa. Thank you for the gift of your book and uh, helping illuminate the journey of myself and so many of us, and more broadly, this journey that we're all on to create more inclusiveness in our workplaces and the world. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you all for showing up in the ways that you did. This was really a gift. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm going to invite you to unmute yourself before you leave because it's really great to hear people's um, voices and saying goodbye. And if you want to stay on a couple minutes, Deepa, I don't know if you have time, but if there's anyone that wants to ask something, Deepa will be here for just a couple minutes after we close. So thank you for coming, everyone. Um, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, info at animaleadership.com. Join us on social media. We will be turning this into a podcast episode and, uh, and see you next time. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Have a great thank day. You. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.